morning. I was getting grief from both John Hay and also Travis for not having my cart full of books. So I'm not sure if that's good or bad. We'll have to see. Um, I'm just coming back from my wife and I. We had gone, and some of you all too, had gone to Memphis, Tennessee last week for a wedding uh, for Sam Cooke. Memphis is a pretty interesting place. It has amazing food. It's the, the home of soul. It's the home of rock and roll. It's also the home of Elvis. Um, it's also the home of the Civil Rights Museum in downtown uh, Memphis. Had an opportunity to, to walk through that place and see basically the history of black Americans and even got to see some of uh, and hear some of uh, Martin Luther King's speeches, which were phenomenal. We actually got to hear a part of the mountaintop speech that was given on April 3rd, 1968. And that was given in support of sanitation workers who were striking in Memphis, 1,300 children of God who were looking for fair pay, fair wages. And we actually drove by the church in Memphis, the Mason Temple Church that Martin Luther King gave that speech. It's probably, if you have an opportunity to listen to it, one of the most compelling, artful pieces of rhetoric that I've ever listened to. It, it literally brought me to tears. And I'm going to try not to, because I'm going to read some from that later in the, in the sermon. I'm going to try to hold it together. So, Nancy, I'm trying, just so you know. So let's pray, and then we're going to get into the, the meat of this passage and this, this, this work. Heavenly Father, you are present, and we thank you, God, for being here. I pray that you would uh, unstop our ears and you'd open my mouth. I pray, God, that you would guide my words. I pray, Father, that um, we would hear you today and that you would be uh, guiding our thoughts, guiding our actions, guiding our minds. In all this we pray, amen. So, that preface was to say, in that speech, Martin Luther King had this nugget that I pulled out, and I, wanna, I think I want to I grow into it, I want to live into it today. He said, somehow the preacher must have a kind of fire shut up in his bones, and I want to unleash that fire from my bones. Hopefully you'll, you'll feel some of the heat. So let's talk about St. James. You may not know much about James. James is uh, the son of Zebedee. The, the, the son of Salome is his mother. Zebedee was a fisherman. Salome was uh, a Jewish mother who was an advocate. His brother's name was John. And together they were known as the Sons of Thunder, which sounds to me like an amazing tag team wrestling combination. Um, I grew up in the days of Rock and Roll Express and the Bushwhackers. Those guys were my favorite. But these are the Sons of Thunder. And they were a powerful, angry, temperamental lot. They were also, um, they came from honest salt of the earth, good stock. Their father, the fishermen, um, they were taken up the trade, the family trade. In fact, they were one of the first four disciples that was called by Jesus. He came down to the Sea of Galilee. He calls Andrew and Peter. And then he sees these other two guys working with their father. And he calls them, James and John. And they immediately left their father's work. And they joined Jesus to become fishers of men. So these are early adopters of Jesus Christ's message. This is around 27 AD, give or take. These dates are a little sketchy, but bear with it. So they are um, dedicated followers. And one of the ways that they, they sort of 
demonstrate their fiery temperament when on one of the trips that Jesus was having, and they're heading towards Jerusalem, not the final trip, but on one of their journeys to Jerusalem, Jesus sent them ahead and said, go, go to that Samaritan village, just let them know I'm coming, and they, they can get things ready. So they go, and the Samaritan village says, says you're going where? You're going to Jerusalem? No, 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 you're not welcome here. So the Samaritans and the Jews, they had this thing, they didn't like each other, and so when they come back to Jesus, they're like, they won't let us in. And they're, they're asking, can we just like call fire and brimstone down and burn the village up? Can we do that, Jesus? And he says, no, no, no. Let's not do that. Let's move on to another village. So that's the kind of guys these were. These were like, you're on our team or you're not. He's also one of the three apostles or disciples that actually gets invited with Jesus onto the Mount of Transfiguration. This was like the select of the select. It was James, John, and Peter that go up to the mount as Christ basically, he's essentially, well, transfigured. He's, it's like he's turned into a golden angelic figure on this mountain and there's a voice that you hear from heaven saying, this is my son. He's one of those apostles that got to hear and got to be a part of that beautiful privilege. And then Jesus says to him, don't say this to anybody. You guys keep quiet about this. So he was absolutely a blessed and favored disciple of Jesus. And we also understand from our Acts reading, we know what happens to him. I can't really hide this in the story. Um, it's not like it's a whodunit. We know who done it. Herod Agrippa kills him or has him killed. And this has occurred roughly around 44 AD. So this is about 14 years after Jesus's resurrection, pardon me, death, resurrection, and ascension. So what happens to James after this? Well, according to some legend, his head stays in Jerusalem and is buried in the chapel of St. James in the Armenian Apostolic Church of St. James in, the, in Jerusalem. His body, the rest of him, was either miraculously taken or taken, some say, by disciples of James to the Iberian Peninsula, to Spain. He's actually the patron saint of Spain. And his body was supposedly found by a shepherd boy in the 9th century, and that was in Compostela, Galicia, Spain. And as a result of this finding, um, that church became a, a place of pilgrimage, and it still is a place of pilgrimage to this day. Some of you may have read books or seen movies that talk about the Camino de, de Santiago, this is the St. James that we're talking about. His body is basically, they say, in this temple or in this, in this church. It's actually more of a cathedral. And folks still to this day walk on pilgrimage on the Santiago de, de, uh, de Santiago. And if you complete it, you get a, a badge called the Compostelo. I've not done that, but I've seen a movie about it. Now, not to be outdone, the French say that they have James in Toulouse. We're not sure. They may each have parts of him. It's, it's hard to say. It's not been confirmed either way. But all of this is background and context to get us into the gospel story. The story itself is really beautiful and compelling. For those of you who are mothers, for those of you who are hover parents, you really this will resonate with you. So the mother of James approaches Jesus 
Now, if you read the story carefully, where's James and John? They're right there. They're right behind their mom. So James's mom, Salome, she goes right up to Jesus and says, basically, what can you do for my boys? I want them to sit at your right and your left hand. Can you do that for me? It seems like an honest request, right? But, you know, maybe she's not being completely uh, ingenuous. Maybe she's looking out for her own benefit. What's going to happen if my sons are at the top? Then I'll get a little bit of love, too, maybe. I'll get some significance. Who knows what's going through her head? But she was definitely advocating for her boys. So Jesus answers, and I think he's got to say it. Maybe he says it with a chuckle. Maybe he says it with a mild dint of exasperation. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? Now, you might from the text say, well, is he talking to her? But obviously they're right there because they said to him, we are able. This is James and John. And then he says, you will drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, that's not mine to grant. It's for those for whom has been prepared by my Father. Isn't that beautiful? Complete submission, obedience. He's in line with the Father's will all the time. I don't make that call. And of course, when the ten, the other ten, the other disciples hear about this, they get upset about it. And this is a wonderful teaching moment that Jesus then is able to turn. And he says to them, he says, you guys you're still operating under the old assumptions about the way the kingdoms of this world work and not about my kingdom. My kingdom works differently than that kingdom. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so. But oh, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the model of leadership. That's the model of the kingdom. That's how Christ calls his disciples, calls us to live. So, Let's put this story in a context. Right after this, Jesus heals a couple of folks, and then it mentions in the Scripture that he's in Jericho getting ready to go to Jerusalem. So Jericho is about 15 miles away from Jerusalem. The Jericho to Jerusalem road, that's the road that the parable of the Good Samaritan took place on. It's a dangerous, meandering, turning road. It's also an increase in elevation of about 3,400 feet in that 15 miles. Jesus is just getting ready to start out from this low point in Jericho to this high point in Jerusalem where he faces his death. And this is the message that he has for his disciples. Be a slave. Be least among you. He's reminding them of his kingdom what it's about, what it's like. 
It takes about eight hours to walk that walk. So after he has this healing, he and his disciples, they walk to Jerusalem, and it's the triumphal entry. He's welcomed as a king. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Shortly to be followed by crucify him, crucify him. So what is this cup that Christ talks about? What is it like? He gives us some pretty clear descriptions of what this cup is like. In Matthew 16, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is coming, going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Wow, this cup sounds like it's bitter. It sounds like you've got to work, like you've got to suffer. That's the cup, the cup of suffering. He goes on, he says in Luke, this is the cost. He's talking to great crowds who have accompanied him. They've received food from him. They've received entertainment from him. He's an engaging speaker, probably one of the best. And they turned, and he turns to the crowd in Luke and says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a, tire, a tower, I said it like an Irishman there, tower, um, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, the path of renunciation, the path of submission, the path of obedience. It's a bitter cup. In Luke, he also says again, again, he's talking with his, his disciples. He's training them. He's trying to get them to think about what this cost is, this discipleship path. And he says as they were going down the road, I will, one of his disciples says, I will follow you wherever you go. Sounds pretty reminiscent. Maybe it was James. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. A good thing, respectful thing, honorable thing. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. 
but let me first say, say farewell to those at my home. Just tidy things up a little. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. These are hard words for those of us who claim to be, desire to be, want to be disciples of Christ. The kingdom that Jesus talks about is a different kind of kingdom. And he's a different kind of king. What does this king require? Well, we've got scripture and it's really helpful. And the beautiful thing is that the more you dig in it, the more you spend time in it, the more you get immersed in it, the more it flavors your life and it flavors who you are. Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? These are the things we're called to do as disciples of Christ. But you know, that's, there's more. There's more to it. Because the call of Christ is not this sort of small invitation to taste. It's a big invitation to live. So let's go back to James. So James, in roughly A.D. 44 or so, I can't imagine that he lost his fiery spirit. And I have to imagine that he kept preaching the gospel. Because after Pentecost... He stays in Jerusalem and he preaches the word. He builds up the church. He proclaims the kingship of Jesus. Now, if you're an earthly king, if there's this other king who's claiming supremacy over you, a good policy is to stamp them out, right? You want people to recognize your kingship. So, Herod Agrippa was a politician, a friend of Rome, and he was one who wanted to guard his kingly prerogatives. He wanted to get in with the Pharisees and the ruling powers of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. So, he takes into custody James. Some people say, some tradition says that he's actually that one, the one that wielded the sword and cut his head off. Others say it's by his order. Suffice it to say he was killed. And he was killed by the word of Herod. That's the cup that James drank from. The cup of martyrdom. An obedient disciple can expect no less than what his master receives. So if we endure hardship, if we have suffering for the name of Christ, welcome it. Don't seek it out, but welcome it. Because that's what Christ has demonstrated he, his message is going to demand. Our world continues to reject Christ and will until the final judgment. So why do we wonder? Why do we scratch our heads 
when we see the world not agreeing with us. The thing that's important and key to remember, it's not an us versus them thing either. God created everything. He created this entire world and all that populate it. They are all our brothers and sisters. Those who fight us, those who hate us, are our brothers and sisters. In an age of tribalism, divisiveness, emotional fragility, broken discourse, poor thinking, the demands of Christ's call, the demands of Christ's way stand in stark contrast to the message of this world. The path of Christ, the Camino de Cristo, is not for the strong or the excellent, the perfect, the intelligent, the self-reliant, the proud. It's not for the perfect parents. The path of Christ is for the humble, the meek, the weak, the needy, the broken, the dependent, the faith-filled, the obedient, the broken, the dangerously unselfish, and those willing to project the I into thou and be concerned for their brothers and sisters. So when Martin Luther King went to Memphis in April of 1968, he was invited, and it was for a sanitation worker strike, kind of a sort of a sidebar, if you will, to the whole civil rights movement. But it was about 1,300, as he called them, children of God who were not receiving equal pay, who were not receiving the right benefits. They were being treated like dirt and expected to do the most work. So he went and heeded their call to come to march with them. And on April 3rd, 1968, he, go, he, he wasn't even actually scheduled to speak at this uh, Mason Temple in Memphis. In fact, one of his uh, friends actually called him and say, he said, Martin, you got to come because it's full. And they didn't think there was going to be a full crowd because it was bad weather. He even comments about this in his speech. So he goes... The guy doesn't even have a speech planned. No notes. It's phenomenal. And I'm not going to mimic his voice because it would do it, do it dis disjustice. But there is something about the southern black preacher voice that if it can't move you, there is nothing in this world that can. So this is what he says to close this speech. And I want to hit on a couple of points. And he says, And then I got into Memphis. And some began to say that threats or talk about the threats that were out. What would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? So I love that phrase, our sick white brothers. He knows they want to kill him. Just like Jesus knew the Pharisees wanted to kill him. Just like James knew Herod wanted to kill him but he still calls them my brothers. They're broken, like you and me. They're my sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind, like anybody, 
I would long to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And that's when I break down and cry. That's the cry of a brother in Christ who just wants to do what God wants him to do. Isn't that everyone's cry who believes in Jesus? I just want to do God's will. I just want to do the right thing. I just want to do what I ought to do, but I don't know how to do because I'm at war with myself. The flesh is within me and it is fighting. I need help. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. James got to go on the mountain. Moses got to go on the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And this is beautiful, and I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. And there's the mic drop moment. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of our Lord. Boom. Done. He walks away. He sits down. He's got tears on his face. The crowd is in uproar. Mine eyes have seen the coming of the glory of our Lord. That next day, as he's outside his hotel in downtown Memphis, the Lorraine Hotel, he's shot by James Earl Ray. He's dead almost instantly. It was a neck shot with a 30 caliber. Boom. End of story. But it's not the end of the story, is it? It's just the beginning of another story. So, you know, I was talking to my wife about this, and she says, what's your word to the Church of the Lamb? What do you have to say to the Church of the Lamb? What do you want to tell them? And I guess what I would say, my word, my takeaway is this. I invite you to drink from the cup of Christ. I invite you to drink from the cup of suffering, knowing that you will suffer. I invite you to count the cost tabulate what this is going to cost you. Tabulate what the demands of Christ will be on your life. And are you willing to pay the butcher bill at the end of the day? And then, I invite you to take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. We have a long way to go, but we have great companions along the way. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are reborn 
to eternal life. Amen.